And we welcome you to the Tuesday Morning Show on WGTD. I'm Gregory Berg. Today, in honor of Women's History Month, I want to replay for you a memorable morning show conversation from August of 2018, which aired not long after the death of the great Aretha Franklin. Part one of this program is a conversation with Meredith Oakes, the author of Aretha Franklin, The Queen of Soul. Part two features a deeply personal and illuminating tribute to Aretha Franklin by a good friend of the morning show, Dr. James Kinchin, director of choral activities at the University of Wisconsin Parkside. Here we go as we remember the great Aretha Franklin. That, of course, is the remarkable voice and artistry of the great, late Aretha Franklin. She is the subject of today's morning show, and we begin our celebration of Aretha Franklin, her life and legacy, with Meredith Oakes, a familiar voice to many of you who listen to National Public Radio, and particularly to National Public Radio's All Things Considered, uh, for which she serves as a commentator, especially on matters related to music. Meredith Oakes is the author of a brand new book uh, called Aretha Franklin, The Queen of Soul. Oakes, we welcome you to the morning show, and I love what you've written in this new book, Aretha, The Queen of Soul. Uh, The very first uh, lines of the introduction are, as an artist, Aretha Franklin is loved and revered. Her voice is evident, an octave-leaping mezzo-soprano capable of dizzying melismatic runs. One of the things that leapt out uh, from those sentences is the fact that you used present tense to describe Aretha Franklin, who, of course, at least in one sense, is no longer with us. Was that a conscious decision on your part to at least sometimes speak of Aretha Franklin in present tense? Yes, it was. I mean, she is alive forever in in our minds, our hearts, and the music. Um, Certainly she was larger than life. And even though she's gone, uh, I I look at the cover of the book, I'm looking at it right now, uh, and she just, she's, she looks so radiant and so alive to me. Hmm. The framework of the book is, I think, very imaginative, and I like the way you have laid out the, the basic chapters of, of her life and, and her legacy. Detroit, reinvention, diva, the awards. 
Uh, was that your framework, and how difficult was it to, in a sense, frame the, the long and, and a complex career of Aretha Franklin? Well, thank you. It actually is my framework, yes. Um, it was, it's so difficult because there has been so much written about her, um, and certainly two David Ritz biographies, one that she wrote with him, one that he wrote 14 years later as a sort of answer to that first one. Um, so, And there are great books out about her. I wanted to do something a little bit different. Um, I really wanted to delve into her relationship with Detroit, with Michigan, because she was connected for her entire life uh, to that city, that great American city. Um, I wanted to talk about some of the things that people don't know about her, about how funny she was um, and how she just had these, these moments that people never saw because she really kept things close to the vest. She didn't talk a lot about emotion, um, especially she didn't talk about her illness ever. So you know, there were things that I wanted to, um, to get into, her, her charitable uh, gifts that she just never wanted any attention for. She just did those quietly. So there was a lot to be told that I, I just kind of figured I would find a different way to tell it. I think you've done a great job. One of the things you say early on is the church shaped her life early on and it remained a fundamental part of who she was. Uh, could you tell us more about the ways in which the church remained important to her uh, even after she in some ways left it. I don't mean uh, leaving behind her own personal faith, but I mean certainly left that life behind for for another life that uh, at least at a glance looked completely different. In what way did the church always remain with Aretha Franklin? It's a really interesting thing because, of course, her dad, C.L. Franklin, was one of the most famous preachers of, of that era and was a rock star himself. I mean, made about 70 albums that often outsold the, the famous bluesman of Detroit, even uh, John Lee Hooker, who was up there working at Ford Motor Company back then. Um, so she, you know, she grew up in this, uh, this, this deep uh, faith and spirituality, but her dad was very progressive. I mean, there was all kinds of stories about how progressive. Some I get into, some I allude to, some is not my t story to tell. Um, but Aretha had in her this sense of duty um, about civil rights, about uh, social justice, about giving, and all that came from her religious background. So she kept the, the, these tenets that helped other people, that cared for other people, um, that kept her going. I mean, she had cancer for, she survived that illness for about seven almost eight years, uh, an illness that kills most people a lot quicker than that. And I believe a lot of that is faith as well. Mm. I was surprised to read that she made her very first recordings at the tender age of 14, and you tell us by then she had already lived an adult life. Uh, explain to our listeners what is packed in those few words. Uh, it's, it's something I did not know about her. Right, because, again, she was very evasive about her personal life, and it took a lot of digging, uh, not just me, I mean, lots of people who have written about her. Um, her dad, again, uh, is this sort of famous rising star uh, in the Baptist Church. And don't forget, this is during the Great Migration. Uh, this is during Jim Crow. 
it was difficult for people of color to get around. So the church was a way where people connected. And if you were traveling, you could you could call and say, well, where can we stay? Where can we get gas? Where can we have meals? Um, and there was this information network happening. This is imagine a time before the internet, people. I mean, this is how uh, how information got around. Um, but by the time she's 12, she's on the road, she's being very sophisticated, uh, she gets pregnant, and she has a child. Um, and then it happens again, almost immediately. So by the time she's 14, she's the mother of two. And, uh, you know, her, her dad's attitude was, you know what, this is our family, and we're just going to raise the kids. And, in fact, his mom uh, took a, a role in raising the kids while Aretha went to school and went on the road. You know, she was opening up for her dad as a, you know, as a, like a performing artist. He would go out to preach, and he would send her out there to sing. And he paid her. He would pay her 50 bucks. So she's, she's, by the time she's 12, 13, 14, she's like learning how to earn money and be responsible. Um, she has two kids, and uh, it's, she lived more in, by the time she was 14, she'd lost her mother at age nine. So by the time she's a young teenager, she's already been through uh, what someone twice her age has been through. So when you hear this beautiful adult voice come out of her, it's no wonder. I mean, she's already lived all, this, all these years packed into just a few years. And you say at one point that voice, uh, which people heard when she was that young, even a non-believer could hear something divine in a voice that came out of her almost fully realized. We, of course, in this book can explore the spectacular dimensions of her of her great career. But as we've already touched on, uh, as you say at one point, she remained Detroit's number one daughter because she never really left. Explain how she remained very much tied to her hometown of Detroit, Michigan, uh, for all of her life, even through those stretches of time when she wasn't living there. Right. So for about 20 years, uh, she's on and off in Detroit. She moves to New York in the early 60s. I think 1960, she signed to Columbia Records, moves to New York, starts to sort of ascend, uh, is taking, they're teaching her how to be a star. They're having her work with Ray Bryant and other big band leaders. So she's living in New York, but she's always going home. Um, she starts to make money. She buys property in Detroit. So she always invested in Detroit. I mean, she owned property even after her death. I think she owned four or five uh, properties in and around Detroit, sometimes to the chagrin of her neighbors. I mean, she just wouldn't sell them, and, and, you know, the weeds would be 10 feet tall, and people would be freaking out. But, you know, Aretha still owned that that land. Um, But she just she felt connected to this place. And for many reasons, I think, you know, it starts, it begins with her connection to the church, um, and then it becomes her connection to the culture. Because, you know, prior to World War II, prior to the, uh, or during, like up until World War II, there were these communities um, of mostly African-American uh, residents who mostly worked at the Big Three. And then at night, they came, you know, came home on Friday night, went to the barber, got all spiffied up, went out. There were tons of clubs and restaurants, and it was like, Heaven, and I talk about this in the book. It was uh, there was one called Black Bottom, which was, is a reference to the topsoil when it was mostly a farming community, and adjacent was Paradise Valley, and these were places that were very important uh, to the black community. And then you see riots, riots in the 40s, riots in the 60s uh, that tear these places apart. The Chrysler Freeway tears the neighborhoods apart. Um, but Aretha remained committed to the city. I think she believed in this great American city, and she felt comfortable there. You know, she bought this house outside, just outside Detroit in Bloomfield Hills. 
and um and she just uh, she was a person who needed her her creature comforts and that was her comfort was home mm. well we explore certainly all that and more in this remarkable book called Aretha the queen of soul a life in photographs 85 photographs in all and the uh, very perceptive and illuminating text of Meredith Oaks. Meredith Oaks, thank you so much for joining me today on The Morning Show. I very much enjoyed the book, and I appreciate the good work you do for uh, NPR's All Things Considered. Well, thanks. My pleasure to be here. Take care. And the time is 8.25. You are listening to The Morning Show on WGTD and to this tribute that uh, we are paying on The Morning Show to the legendary Aretha Franklin. Here is an example of her singing from the age of 14. Franklin, 14 years old, with the great uh, hymn, Precious Lord. And uh, with us now is Dr. James Kinchin, Director of Choral Activities at the University of Wisconsin Parkside, typically here uh, on the morning show to uh, talk about other musical matters, but here today to talk about uh, one of his very, very favorite singers, Aretha Franklin. We're glad to have you here. You specifically asked me to track down uh, a recording of Aretha Franklin, age 14, singing Precious Lord. Um, why did you want to be sure to include this particular recording in uh, what we offered up today? Well, I just thought that um, when you listen to that recording, when you listen to her sing that song, uh, sung uh, at a church probably with one microphone and a relatively unsophisticated recording system, uh, you know, not nearly the production values that, that we're used to with commercial recordings and her commercial recordings particularly, it's almost like experiencing musical DNA. You hear in that recording just about everything that, that you will ever hear in Aretha Franklin at age 14, the voice. Uh, and, I, and I'm speaking of the voice in a couple of ways. Uh, the voice as an instrument, Okay, uh, with the power and and the brilliance that that she brought to her singing, but also the voice in an artistic way, her 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 ability to sort of utter forth what she wanted to, and to do that in a way that showed complete command of it, uh, and and I just that struck me particularly. Uh, in uh, in those uh, days after her death when we could hear lots and lots of recordings of things that all of us knew and things that none of us knew and, and, and all in between, uh, how that song, that rendition at age 14, presages everything that Aretha Franklin will do. Hmm. Let's hear just a little bit more of this memorable moment. 
And again, this is Rita Franklin, 14 years old. Young Aretha Franklin and uh, Dr. Kinchin, I think you said that very well. We, this is a very special way to encounter this remarkable artist. Uh, what do you remember about your own earliest encounters with Aretha Franklin? And were you in love with her singing right from the first moment you heard it? Well, so my first encounters with Aretha Franklin happened when I was a tenth grader, uh, and. Uh, and I'll, and I'll have to tell you, and, and, and what I'm about to say is really directly related to the question of what made her the great singer that she was. But when I first heard Aretha Franklin, it sounded so much like church okay, mm. that I thought— now, Your church. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, black, you know, black church, black church. You know, the, the, the gospel flavor. And, and I thought, gosh, I mean, that's something— that can't be right that somebody who's singing, you know, R and B would 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 have that that kind of sound that's so directly related to the gospel mm-hmm. sound that I hear. And so I was a little bit standoffish for about four or five months, mm-hmm. and then I just fell in love. I fell totally in love, and I couldn't get enough of listening to Aretha Franklin, and and of course with all of my peer group, she was just she was the rage. And her singing, her sound, totally redefined uh, what was then, you know, even at that time, an extant musical form for us because it was what we listened to, you know, what you know, R and B, and what we were calling more increasingly uh, soul music. Uh, but I just, I just totally fell in love. It was Aretha, 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 all Aretha. Mm. So, <laughs> roughly, what year are we talking about? So we're talking about 1967, okay. uh, because that's when her first recordings under Atlantic Records uh, were, were issued. Uh, Aretha had, I think, somewhere around the age of 18 or so, signed a contract with Columbia. And with Columbia, it was sort of, in a way, the typical story for many black artists with differing results, um, varying results, I should say, where, you know, here's somebody who sort of came of age in the church, and this is where they developed their talent, and they were, quote, unquote, discovered, and then they were signed to a label, and then they were then assigned songs to sing. Um, you know, uh, ballads and, and uh, you know, light jazz things in her case. And, and in every instance, with virtually no exceptions from what I've heard of the Columbia output, 
it was stuff that was well done, but it it didn't quite click. That mm. it didn't quite come together in the way that you ex- expected it, and the absence of real commercial success showed that. Now we can get the commercial uh, Columbia recordings today, but had it not been for the Atlantic contract that came after that, uh, the Columbia recordings would probably be somewhere in some archive or something. Mm. Uh, we know her at all. We're interested in hearing anything by her at all because of the work that she did with Atlantic. And that started uh, in 1967. And and, uh, and I Never Loved a Man the Way That I Love You, I think, is the first thing that she, that she did. And it just kind of burst onto the charts, and we fell in love with it. Interesting. And so what you're saying is this was an R&B artist who was bringing another element to it that you weren't necessarily hearing in other artists or, exactly. or not to the same extent exactly exactly and 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 it was the very it was the very thing that caused me trepidation in the beginning like gosh she sounds so churchy it was the gospel sound that she brought to it um totally completely uh and the people at atlantic and and particularly uh the executive jerry wexler who worked with her had the good sense to realize that this was what made Aretha Franklin unique. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it wasn't taking her and putting her behind a mic somewhere and giving her some material to sing. It was Aretha doing Aretha. Mm. And so uh, so basically uh, he would, uh, would sit her at the piano, took her to um, the uh, down to, to Alabama, I think it was Florence, Alabama, to the Muscle Shoals Studios, uh, which became a legendary place for great uh, recording sessions, mm. you know. And basically would sit her down to the piano and Aretha would play what Aretha did. And, you know, with any great musician, whatever kind of music you do, uh, whether it's popular or, or classical, whether it's something that you create yourself or something that someone else has done, it's your ability to bring that music and to make that music come alive that makes you great or not so much. And Aretha Franklin would sit at the piano. She would make this music come alive. And then the band would start, start sort of sketching uh, what mm. they did around her. Uh, but she was at the core of it. And, and that's another thing they talk about Aretha, the piano. A lot of people don't know what an incredibly fine pianist she was. Mm. She, she played wonderfully. Uh, and so that's what they did. They, they let her bring that sound fully. Uh, to to her recording. And in addition to putting a a really fine band behind her, um, the the, the percussion values and how the rhythm of the music was accentuated was something that was stronger than what one was hearing in a lot of the recorded work at that time. And that helped to set it apart as well. Mm. So they uh, sort of disavowed the notion of of plugging her into... Mm -hmm. uh, Prearranged package mm-hmm, mm-hmm. of of what most people would expect, and instead allowed her to be the unique artist that she was. Yeah. Well, you've brought some things along, and let's uh, let's listen to another uh, recording of Aretha Franklin. And uh, okay, and, uh, and so since I since I mentioned uh, I never loved a man, I thought that maybe uh, we get a chance to hear a, a little bit of that. So this is one of her first recordings for Atlantic. Right. And you said this was like an explosion. It was an explosion. Oh, my gosh. Let's hear it.
Aretha Franklin in uh, one of the blockbuster uh, recordings she made in 1967 that changed everything. We're talking about Aretha Franklin's life and career on WGTD's morning show today, and our expert commentator in the studio is Dr. James Kinchin, uh, director of choral activities at uh, at Carthage College. At, oh dear, at the University of Wisconsin Parkside. I'm just that rolls out of my tongue a little too. Oh yes, yes, yes. Another another good school, but today yeah, yeah. UW Parkside and Dr. James Kinchin. Uh, Dr. Kinchin, so what would you say to someone who wonders what you're talking about when you say that you hear elements of gospel? in Aretha Franklin singing in a way that one typically did not hear in R&B singers at, at the time. What specifically in the singing speaks to you as, as, as gospel? What, what are the aspects of the singing? Well, well there, are, there are several different aspects, and some of them are things that I could mention, and the listener would immediately go, yes, okay, I, I could hear that. And some of them a little bit more elusive to, to, to many years. But when you hear it, you know it. So, so for one thing, there is that that real um, connection with emotion that mm. that comes so strongly from from gospel music of all kind. You know, it's it's not ever a performance as such. 
Mm. It's, it's always speaking from the heart through the, through the music. And that's a little more the, visceral. A little more visceral. Um, the the phrasings that that you hear. Um, now, uh, you, Ms. Oaks, in the interview that you did, talked about some about her father. Her father was a huge influence on Aretha's music, uh, even though her father was known primarily as a preacher. Hmm. Uh, but uh, when he would do his sermons, as in many cases in black churches, then and even now, at some point in the middle of that sermon, the voice would become more melodic. Mm. And then, uh, then it would begin to take on a certain rhythmic cadence. Um, and and there would be a kind of phrasing that would happen that would allow the congregation to have its uh, its own interjections of right. amen and, and hallelujah yeah. say that. And so uh, that kind of flavor gets gets really uh, incorporated very very heavily into into Aretha Franklin's music. So in in, in, in terms of that sort of dramatic arc yeah, that, yeah. that that that, that yeah, occurs. Yeah, yeah. Now I'm just curious. Um, at the time that Aretha Franklin was approaching R&B in this different way, who else was big in R&B, names that, that even a white Lutheran from Iowa would, would <laughs> might possibly recognize, uh, who, who were singing a more kind of standard style of R&B at the time? Well, for example, uh, it's you know some of the people who came out of Motown. Uh, so and, like the temptations, temptations of Supremes. For okay, and uh, and I, I mean I wondered about that. I mean, and I especially like the Supremes quite a lot. I know a lot of, of their stuff. That's the first record I ever bought with my own money. Mm-hmm. And 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 I now I really understand the contrast you're saying. I mean, for as good as a group like the Supremes were, you never had a feeling of like raw emotionality. <laughs> yeah. You know, kind of pouring out of them like they were opening up their hearts to you it it, it had it was much slicker and smoother and yeah. and and by and by design in, in in lots of ways because Barry Gordy wanted uh, to have that music be more sort of palatable to to a crossover audience. right for white lutherans in Iowa I mean I mean it worked it worked for me and Aretha Franklin might have scared me off a little bit yeah, yeah. not anymore not anymore no 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 so uh, let's listen to uh, something else that you've brought with you. That, sure, uh, just a little bit of something because I want to talk a little bit about one of the great um, uh, gifts that she had, uh, and that was not only to do her own right. stuff, but also to do somebody else's stuff. Now, this p- particular piece that we'll listen to now is a piece called "Since You've Been Gone," uh, and it's and it's Aretha's own work and and and. and just, and I think you can hear even more of that gospel feel in this piece. Okay, uh, here we go. Baby, baby, sweet baby.
also we were talking about uh, what, what, what are some of the elements in the sort of gospel elements. Uh, and you hear a little bit more of that in the rhythm. But also what you also, what you also hear is this backup group. That, yeah, that's that's doing this kind of response to her. That, that's oh, and very that much would, in that in that gospel. Okay, tradition. that's yeah. interesting. Yeah. Would, I wouldn't have uh, wouldn't have necessarily made that connection yeah. without you pointing it out. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah, yeah. And and I mean, besides that, you know, lots of things that made uh, made Franklin really just unique. One of the things that's sort of obvious to overlook is the voice. Um, Aretha Franklin is a soprano. Mm. Okay. And you didn't have a whole lot of sopranos singing uh, in that style and during those times, um, and and so I'm so they try, would have been deeper, would have darker, been deeper voices. darker voices. Okay. And so this is something that you and I sort of take for granted, and I'll try to explain it in a way that the, the listener get, will find some meaning in it. That there are adjustments that anybody's voice can make. Um, there is a sort of heavier adjustment that we use when we talk that gives us power. And then as we are trained to sing particularly, we can change that adjustment so that we can sing higher and higher and higher notes. Higher uh, than we would speak. High, much higher yeah. than we would speak. And, and notes that are not accessible to us using that speaking voice. Right. And that's especially true for women. Especially true for women. And so what happens a lot of times in, the, in some of the, the black uh, popular styles is that people will really use that that lower heavier adjustment the chest if you will um because it has power it conveys emotion and then as they get higher and higher uh the voice becomes more of a shout and and it loses a lot of pitch precision and at some point you just sort of run out of notes aretha had this amazing ability to adjust the voice so that she could go up above what we call above the staff, high Fs and Gs mm-hmm. and, and, and A flats and so forth, um, and could do those with the right mix of power and control so that they never were like just noise, but or just screams or, or screams. screams or screams, yeah. And that that was just totally, uh, totally amazing. Now, um, the piece we just heard was one that she wrote. So she was able to cover a lot of stuff. And and the most famous cover, which we won't listen to, I guess, because everybody knows it, is Respect. Respect was a song written by Otis Redding, recorded by Otis Redding. But she covered that. She did. Right. The famous re- refrain, R-E-S-P-E-C-T. Yes, yes. Da, 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 yeah. And uh, and other pieces that she did, for example, uh, you know, I Say a Little Prayer for You, which was a Bert. Baccarat, uh, Hal uh, David uh, kind of thing, and uh, I think it was uh, Dion Warwick that recorded that. Um, the, well, and uh, right off the bat, uh, I, I don't know if you were in the studio yet, but I, the very first thing I played this morning ahead of the Meredith Oaks record, uh, interview was her cover of You Make Me Feel Like a Natural yes, Woman yes. by Carol, Carol King. King. That's right, that's right. So. And so she was able to do def- not just covers, but definitive covers, so that when once she did it, it became hers. <laughs> right, made <laughs> and, it her own. Yeah, made it her own. And the one to me that's just really so remarkable, and I uh, asked my wife's advice, and she said this was the one that I should do, and I agreed this was the one, so we were in agreement on it, uh, is a piece that she did uh, that was originally a Paul Simon uh, song, Bridge Over Troubled Water, that was recorded by Simon and Garfunkel. Huh. And she does that um, and takes it, literally takes it to church. 
Wow. Bridge over troubled water. I'm not sure I've ever heard this, so yeah. this is going to be fun. So yeah. this is the cover of Bridge Over Troubled Water by Aretha Franklin. Yes. <laughs> I'm glad you listened to your wife's advice on that one, although you also had the same idea that this is a great example of her yeah. uh, magic oh, with uh, with other people's music. Oh, I I don't think I've ever heard that, and that's woe to me. I mean, so happy you introduced that. And and, uh, and, and she's doing piano work on that, too. Mm. It's just You're right. really could, special. Yeah, one of the things that... Uh, uh, in the the book of Meredith Oaks that we were talking about at the top of the uh, hour, uh, Aretha Franklin, the Queen of Soul, she quotes among other people Elton John, mm-hmm. uh, an amazing singer and pianist, who said that Aretha Franklin was as good as any pianist he ever saw and yeah. heard. Oh, so yeah. Yeah. 
So a big, big compliment from somebody who understands the piano. Yeah, yeah, yeah. um, And, of course, we should just touch briefly on the fact that this was a long career and that Aretha Franklin went through lots of various phases and so on. What we're really hearing, I think you're kind of implying, is Aretha Franklin maybe at her her artistic peak. At her peak, Did you continue to really enjoy her singing even through all of the— I did. Uh, other I, I, things she explored. Yeah, I, I did, uh, and uh, and I and I and I have to say this uh, real quickly that uh, that that my wife got uh, at least one other thing right. Uh, she decided that uh, she would take me to see Aretha Franklin live because I'd never seen her live oh. until I came to Wisconsin, and so the first time I saw her live was at the state fair. Uh, and, uh, and so that was my, my special date to, wow. to, to, to go there. And, and what year was that? Oh, gosh. Roughly. Uh, roughly. I roughly. I, I would guess it was probably about 2013, 2014, something, something okay. like that. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that was so special. And then I got to hear her again when she came to the Riverside uh, more recently. Mm. Uh, I think it was maybe her last year or so of touring. Wow. Uh, but but powerful performances. It's amazing what yeah. she re- ab- yeah. was what she was able to retain nearly to the very end. Yes. It's incredible. Yes. yes, yes. So I know you have at least one more thing you yeah, want to be sure, sure that we uh, listen to yeah. today. So it, it's a, it's a gospel thing and and it's it's unique in in a couple of ways. Yeah. Uh it's it's unique uh because um it's it's an example. So the, so the biography of the singer who starts out in the church and then goes and has popular success is all over the place. Mm-hmm. That's almost everybody's biography. But what you don't hear often is the mature artist, the successful artist, coming back to the gospel roots. And that's what you hear in this. Ah. This recording she did in 1972 called Amazing Grace. Interestingly, it is her best-selling work ever. Really? And and they they've made a movie about that, and I'm I'm hoping that it comes somewhere close by so that I can see uh, the, the sort of behind the scenes of making Amazing Grace. Um, but here she is, a mature artist, and she's bringing with her the the high production values of Atlantic. They're not going to let their leading star mm. just go out and sing in front of a microphone. Right. They back the big truck up to the church. <laughs> it's, it's recorded in Los Angeles. Okay, and uh, and also it's a big boost for what we call contemporary gospel, which at that time was a new style with it gospel. It had, it was just three years old, 1969, Oh Happy Day was sort of the advent of contemporary gospel. Okay. And even though a lot of the pieces on Aretha's album are not contemporary, everything is sort of framed within this contemporary style, and mm. that was just a huge boost. I'd like to share uh, Precious Lord again. This is a whole different take on Precious Lord. It combines the traditional Dorsey song with a song that was very popular at the time called You've Got a Friend. Ah. Uh, and so this, this I think, is a great way to hear her, her artistry uh, as, a, as a gospel artist uh, coming back in, in a mature. Everything she touched turned to gold in those oh, days. Oh, very good. Yeah. And uh, shall we hear the first half or the last half of it? What would you prefer? Well, let's do the first half. Okay. Uh, All right. Yes. As much of it as yeah. we can. As, as we can. Yeah. And Dr. James Kinchin, this has been a joy. I really appreciate you uh, being here on the morning show to share your thoughts and these marvelous recordings of the great Aretha Franklin. Thank you so much for having great, me. It's great, great pleasure. And here she is. And Jesus said, call my name because I'll be there. 
when you're down in trouble you need some love and care ain't nothing My thanks again to Dr. James Kinchin for joining us today on the Wednesday morning show.